0: Zechariah, chapter 9, and verse 9. Zechariah, chapter 9, and verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. The previous verses of this chapter have been speaking of God's coming judgment upon various Gentile nations. The nations or city-states of Syria, Tyre, Zidon, Gaza, Ekron, Ashkelon and Ashdod are all singled out for judgment. Nations today which defy God and his holy law continue to expose themselves to God's righteous anger. We live in a nation today which is totally ignorant of that fact. It is our task to make it known. Defy God and his commandments And there will be national judgments. Now, here in verse 9, the Lord tells the captives returned from Babylon that they, in fact, have cause for much rejoicing. Having spoken of judgment on the Gentile nations, the prophet now speaks. Of God's people having cause for great rejoicing. Because in the future, a king is going to come. Who is going to mightily exalt the nation of Israel. We have a reference in this verse 9 to daughter of Zion and daughter of Jerusalem. Now, these are poetic terms for the nation as a whole. A king is coming to you, says the Lord, to lead you on to safety and prosperity. Now, what more do we know about this king? The second part of verse 9. He is just and having salvation lowly, and riding upon an ass, and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. Though this man will be your king, he will be different from the kings of the nations round about, having none of the trappings of royalty. He will not be seen in regal clothes, nor will he ride on a great horse, the customary beast of military commanders. But he will be lowly and riding upon an ass, and not even upon a full-grown ass, but upon the fall of an ass. A conveyance of lesser dignity in earthly terms and speaking of much humility. Now the depressed situation of the returned captives in Zechariah's day is such that they are devoid of any earthly glory. Jerusalem lies in ruins. But herein lies an indicator that the kingdom of this future king is not going to be like the kingdoms of this world anyway. God will preserve and uphold this king. Even though he will appear to have a very lowly Status by the world's standards, God will exalt the nation through him. He is described as having salvation. And the Hebrew verb form here conveys the sense of showing himself to be a saviour having salvation in himself and having it to impart to others. He will be endowed with the power to save and he will bestow this power to save as a king. Now, we of course know from the New Testament that these words of verse 9 see their fulfilment in a coming descendant of David namely the Lord Jesus Christ he it is who brings his people not out of physical Babylon but out of spiritual Babylon the kingdom of this world where they would otherwise remain as hopeless captives to Satan. The Lord Jesus Christ brings the believer in him out of a horrible slavery to sin. Now, we read in John's Gospel, chapter 12, concerning our Lord's triumphal entry into Jerusalem shortly before his crucifixion. We read in John 12, verse 12. On the next day, much people that were come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the King of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. And Jesus, when he had found a young ass, sat thereon. As it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, thy king cometh sitting on an ass's colt. And so there in John 12, we see the perfect fulfilment of this Prophecy made 500 years earlier in Zechariah 9. This entry of the Lord into Jerusalem forms the commencement of the fulfillment of the Zechariah 9 prophecy. It forms the commencement of the Establishment of Christ's kingdom. This is a spiritual kingdom. The true church today is the daughter of Zion, the daughter of Jerusalem. The term used in this first nine. The earthly Zion has become the heavenly Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. The New Testament describes believers in Christ as citizens of that heavenly city. It is the spiritual city to which all believers in Christ belong. Our Lord then would have no earthly glory. He would not exercise military might. He was nevertheless Israel's long-awaited deliverer. And he will reign till he hath put all his enemies under his feet. He has authority over all the nations today. And he is returning to this earth to judge the nations. The resurrected Lord told his disciples, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. We read in the epistle to the Hebrews of our Lord's authority where it is said of God the Father in respect of his Son, in Hebrews 2 and verse 7, Thou crownest him with glory and honour and did set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. So all the nations of the earth today are subject to the authority of Jesus Christ. We read in verse 10 here, God says, and I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. Ephraim here is used as representing the two northern tribes, uh, the ten northern tribes of Israel. And Jerusalem as representing the two Southern tribes. The coming king, who is lowly and riding upon an ass, will be king over all Israel, not a divided Israel. But his government, as we have said, will not be based upon earthly military power, such as horses, chariots, and battle bows. So, the language being employed here in verse 10 indicates the complete rejection of all earthly means in securing the Messiah's government. Jesus Christ does not use earthly means, military power, to establish. His authority. Our Lord explained during his earthly ministry, and we read this earlier in John 18 and verse 36 My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight militarily that I should not be delivered to the Jews but now is my kingdom not from hence this was the great problem with the people of our Lord's own day they expected the Messiah to establish an earthly kingdom even the Lord's own disciples expected that Initially, But the messianic kingdom, which the people must look forward to in Zechariah's day, is not from hence. Its foundation is not in this world. There is no place on earth today which represents the kingdom of God. The Messiah's kingdom is not the possession of territory. It is a spiritual kingdom with a heavenly throne. Now we are told of the Messiah in this verse 10. He shall speak peace unto the heathen. And his dominion shall be from sea even to sea and from the river even to the ends of the earth in other words his kingdom will be a universal kingdom not confined to a single location on the earth by his gospel which is the message of peace Christ speaks peace to the sinners which constitute all mankind, whether Jews or whether all the other nations. He shall speak peace unto the heathen. That word means all the nations apart from Israel. So, this coming king's message of peace will be equally. For Jew and Gentile. The term from sea to sea in verse 10 refers initially to the boundaries of Israel, to the Red Sea and the Mediterranean. The river is the Euphrates, which was. The boundary of Israel in Solomon's day. Jerusalem and Israel are to be the centre and foundation of the king's future dominion. But only in the sense that it is from that region that the gospel establishing the spiritual kingdom will go forth. And the king's dominion is going to extend to the remotest parts of the earth. Our lord's kingship is therefore universal in its operation. And we must not think in terms of earthly territory. The sense here in Zechariah 9 and verse 10 is that the messianic king's dominion will be of vast extent in terms of encompassing people from every tribe and language and nation. Now we today as believers in Christ belong to this spiritual kingdom. And Christ, our King, exercises authority over all the nations of the earth. There is no nation upon earth exempt from an obligation to submit to Jesus Christ as King. He is King over those who reject him. For who he really is. He is still their king. He still has authority. Over them. And we know of course. That there are vast. Millions and billions of people. Who do still reject him. Now moving on to verse. 11. As for the also. By the blood of thy covenant I have sent forth thy prisoners out of the pit wherein is no water. The Lord is stressing here whom he is addressing, his own people, Israel. Because in the Old Testament period, the people of God were confined to that one nation. But even in the Old Testament period, The people of God were not everybody who lived in Israel. Even in the Old Testament period, the people of God were those who had true faith and were looking for the Messiah who is to come. This is why Paul says, they are not all Israel which are of Israel. So even in the Old Testament, it was faith which determined whether one is a child of God or not. Now, we see in verse 11 that the Lord is in covenant with his people by means of shed blood. When Israel first entered into covenant with God, back in the wilderness in the time of Moses, we are told in Exodus 24 and verse 7. Moses took the blood, the blood of oxen, and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. So this blood sprinkled upon the Israelites demonstrated that they could have no fellowship with God unless his justice upon sin was first satisfied through death, through the shedding of blood. The oxen's blood was shed in place of the people's blood being shed. People's sin being symbolically transferred to the oxen. The principle of substitutionary atonement. As for thee also by the blood of thy covenant. I have sent forth thy prisoners out of the pit. Wherein is no water. This pit is is a reference to the anguish of the Babylonian captivity. It is also an image of the misery of the Jewish exiles elsewhere. In Egypt, Greece and other lands in later years between Zechariah's time and our Lord's coming. Now in Zechariah's day, The Lord is setting his prisoners free. He's bringing them out of Babylon in remembrance of his blood-based covenant made with the people back in the time of Moses. So despite all the rebellion which had led to the captivity in Babylon, the Lord in his mercy has not utterly repudiated the covenant So as we have stated, the phrase, prisoners out of the pit wherein is no water, in verse 11, refers to the captives being in Babylon. But it also represents typically and symbolically the plight of all who are without Jesus Christ today. They are prisoners in a pit wherein is no water. That is the desperate condition of every single non-Christian. All are stranded in a Babylonian type captivity. Dying from thirst as trapped in a pit. They are in Satan's kingdom. They are Desperately needing to be lifted out of the pit and brought into the spiritual Canaan, which is the kingdom of God. And this is only possible through repentance from sin and faith in the Saviour who shared his own blood, the blood of the covenant between the Holy God. And unworthy sinners. Verse 12. Turn you to the stronghold ye prisoners of hope. Even today do I declare that I will render double unto thee. The Lord now addresses Israel as the prisoners of hope. Because in his grace... He has not left them without hope. Yes, he sent them in judgment to Babylon, but he gives them the hope of this coming king. And when they returned from Babylon, they never at any point in their history returned to the glories of Solomon's time. They never returned to national independence. Throughout the period between the return from captivity and our Lord's appearing, they were under a foreign imperial power of some sort. They had varying degrees of liberty within that imperial imperial. Authority, but they never again became an independent nation. But the Lord addresses them as prisoners of hope. And so they have this great hope. Jesus Christ is the hope of Israel. They, for their part, must. Turn to the stronghold, as verse 12 says. So the prophet exhorts the people, both those still in Babylon and those already returned to the land to hasten to the stronghold, which is Jerusalem, which had in the past been a stronghold and which now in Zechariah's time is to be built again. Entering into the stronghold which is Jerusalem symbolises entering into the place where salvation is. And it speaks to us of entering into this spiritual kingdom which Jesus Christ has established. The heavenly Jerusalem Entering into the stronghold of Zion. And this is where all believers in Christ now reside. This is where he reigns on the throne. Those of Israel who come to this stronghold and who put their faith in the coming king will experience double the blessings that they knew before the captivity. What is the hope of Israel? Is it freedom from Roman occupation? The hope of Israel is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is described as such in the New Testament. And so, there is this promise made to the people here. He calls them the prisoners of hope. Even today do I declare that I will render double unto thee. To render double has the sense not strictly of twice the quantity, but simply of great abundance. I will pour out my grace upon you. And make you prosper if you submit to the coming king. Verse 13. When I have bent Judah for me, filled the bow with Ephraim, and raised up thy sons, O Zion, against thy sons, O Greece, and made thee as the sword of a mighty man. Now here in verse 13 we have a metaphor whereby the Lord likens himself to an archer. Judah is the bow. Ephraim, or Israel, the northern kingdom, is the arrow, which fills, or is inserted in, the bow. So this speaks of the two kingdoms, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, coming together. And there were indeed people from the northern ten tribes amongst the Jews of the southern kingdom when the promised land was resettled after the captivity. So Judah and Israel will once again become as a strong united weapon in the hands of the Lord. The reference in this verse 13, to the sons of Zion triumphing over the sons of Greece, is a prophecy of Israel triumphing over her Gentile enemies. If only she remains faithful. Frequently in the Bible, but particularly in the New Testament, The term Greek is a general designation of the Gentiles because the Greek civilization had such enormous influence in biblical times and leading up to the coming of the Lord. In the 300 years before our Lord's coming, Greek modes of thought would have had an enormous effect upon jewish people even in zechariah's time greece was rising in military power such that within 20 years of this prophecy greece would possess sufficient might to openly rebel against persia and greece would become so formidable that the Persian army could not suppress the Greek uprising for generations. So Greece would come to be a major player on the world stage, which is why it is referred to here in verse 13 as an apt representative of the Gentiles, generally. And so... The bow will be drawn against thy sons, O Greece. And so here God's people are being told that they will be empowered against the Gentile world. He will make the return captives as the sword of a mighty man. Despite... The enormous influence of Greece. In other words, the great power of Greece in fashioning how people think and, and, and their physical control of nations, the great power of Greece will not affect the power of the coming king. Of course, as we look at this verse 13, we must remember, as we saw from verse 10, that Israel's power to overcome Greece does not refer to literal military might. It refers to the conquest of the truth of Jesus Christ over the hearts of sinful men. And so the sons of Greece are going to be overpowered by God's true Zion. Those who believe in Jesus Christ. That's what verse 13 is saying. And the true sons of Zion, of course, uh, comprise both Jews. And Gentiles. Uh, No one is excluded. Faith in Christ is the key. No one is replaced. Faith in Christ is the key. Verse 14. And the Lord shall be seen over them. And his arrow shall go forth as the lightning. And the Lord God shall blow the trumpet. And shall go with the whirlwinds of the south. So this is a promise to Zion of God's aid in her conflict with the Gentile nations, with all the nations. The kingdom of God ruled by its lowly king in earthly terms will advance. Because God will fight against the enemies of Christ's people. So, again, in this verse 14, the triumph of the church of Jesus Christ is being foretold here. The enemies of God will be brought down. With the deadly and piercing arrow of the word of God. Not with military power. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. The Lord God shall blow the trumpet and shall go with the whirlwinds of the south. The phrase shall go with the whirlwinds of the south means that the Lord shall go forth as in the most furious storm such as would often come from the south. In Isaiah 21 and verse 1 we have a reference to whirlwinds coming from a southerly direction. So Zechariah is speaking of the whirlwind of Christ's power as judge. He today is the governor of the nations. Zechariah chapter 9 is speaking to us of the power of the risen Christ right now. And he comes against those who rebel against him with frightening power. He comes against the sons of Greece. That is a description of all the enemies of God's true kingdom today. He comes in power against the sons of Greece. Today, the Lord can make us who believe in Christ as the sword of a mighty man. Verse 13. That is a description of the true church. The sword of a mighty man. We are in God's hand. What great kings he can accomplish through us. The hearts of the most wicked and defiant of men can be transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if men refuse the gospel, then they will be subdued by God's wrath and judgment. So repeating what we've already referred to, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 4, Paul says, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. We right now are in the midst Of a great cosmic battle. The forces of darkness. Appear to be closing in. Upon. Our civilization. Western civilization. Is collapsing. And others are poised. To take over. The politicians do not understand this. We have to defend our Christian civilization, or we will quickly lose it. And we defend it not with earthly weapons, but by preaching the gospel. We, as Christians, possess the invincible sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This is a mighty sword. And it will bring the enemy down if we use it. We now belong to the invincible kingdom which the lowly king, riding upon an ass into Jerusalem, only to be put to a cruel death, has now established. This kingdom is the stronghold. To which the Jews of Zechariah's day had to look forward to. And this is the kingdom. To which all non-believers today must turn as well. If they wish to escape from the pit of rebellion against God. A pit wherein is no water. Now, those who trust in Jesus Christ need not fear the world. They need not fear the scale of the opposition against them. Why? Because we are in the stronghold of Zion. We are citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem, we are the sons of Zion. And we shall assuredly have victory over the sons of Greece. Who here represent this world. All who reject Jesus Christ. This victory however is only for those who are truly sons of Zion. Those who have repented of their sin. And sought mercy in Jesus Christ, those who now follow him with all of their hearts. So, as we read Zechariah 9, let us rejoice that we are living in the fulfillment of this prophecy. Let us rejoice that we are under the kingship of Christ, he who possesses all power even to the ends of the earth, as verse 10 states. Let us rejoice in our privileged status as citizens of Zion. Amen.